Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. I want to encourage everyone to send us emails, even if you don't have a story. Just send emails and tell us how much you love the podcast. Or how much you hate it. Probably the first one. <laughs> or, or if you hate it, that's fine too. At least open the dialogue. Let's yeah. discuss it. Any mail we'll is good it. mail. Uh, what's, what's the email? That's probably a good time to say the email. Eerie and absurd at gmail.com. How could I forget that? I don't know. Bless your heart. I'm going to start a cult, and I think I need long hair to do so. Is that required as a cult leader? No. Like long hair and a robe? Ugh. Maybe I shouldn't call it a cult. No, you're not starting a cult. What is it? uh, A club? A club, no. Um, A covenant? No, that's a... That's what for witches. uh, That's pretty cool. No. You're right. That's not it. A commune. That's what (laughs) I'm looking for. No communes. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Wendy. I'm Mike. We're so glad that you're back with us. It's we, so close to Halloween. Michael still hasn't done his scary story. I'm going to. I Are have an you? idea of what it's mm, about. I feel like you're chickening out. I'll do it. And then, yes. No. So we have some uh, weird stories. This week we have, I found a story about a Halloween murder. And you've got people setting on fire. People. Self-combusting. Yes. yes, people combusting. You got people. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Setting on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I say? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Do you want to go first with your story this week? Okay. Since I always go first. You do. Seems like. You're quite selfish. I'm just joking. Well, first I'm going to cite my sources. I got my my main information from Murderpedia and Investigation Discovery and Scared Monkeys. And I'm going to link all of that stuff on our website. This I've called this one Rebecca Jane in the Pasture. Okay. And I know I'm Southern, and I don't mean a field. I mm-hmm. mean church. Pasture at the church. A pastor? Pastor? I don't know. I not, I'm not saying it right, am I? Not I'm a good Southern. To be honest. A holy man. Preacher. Rebecca Jane Gay was born on March 26th of 1988 to Thomas and Sally Gay in Midland County, Michigan. She graduated from Bullock Creek High School in 2007 and attended in-session school of cosmetology. She had recently been promoted to a management position at the Goodwill store in Mount Pleasant, where she was currently employed. She was the mother to a three-year-old boy named Conway and was seriously dating a man named Aaron Quinn. On Wednesday, October 31st of 2012, 24-year-old Rebecca was reported missing to the Isabella County Sheriff's Office. 
Rebecca never showed up for her 8 a.m. shift for work and never called in, which concerned her coworkers. This was extremely unlike her, and by noon, they made the decision to call the police after family members stated they hadn't seen her since around 6.50 a.m. that morning. Yeah, so she didn't show up for work. Mm-hmm. They're concerned. This is all pretty quick, too. At, like, noon, they're calling. Yeah. She's not here. It's unlike her. Exactly. And luckily, the police, I guess, they took this quite serious because usually it's like, oh, she's an adult. You have to wait 24 hours, 48 hours. I ain't, she ain't been gone long enough. Right. They very quickly started looking for her. I don't know. It does sound weird that they were, like, so on it. Mm-hmm. Is it because we're so accustomed to people not, not doing stuff right away? I guess. Just good police work. Yeah. Like, they were on this. So, later that day, Rebecca's car was found behind a bar near her home called the Barn Door. However, no one had seen or heard from her at the bar. Her car was just found there behind it. Did, wait, so did she go to that bar? I don't know. A lot? Like... I don't think so. I didn't find anything stating that she goes there all the time. Okay. Her car's just found there. Hmm. Maybe she goes there every now and then with friends or something. So this is on a Wednesday when she's reported missing. And she doesn't seem the type to be out. On a weekday at the bar. Yeah, at the bar. No, she's got a child. She, you know, she has a three-year-old little boy. She's got a job. She had to go to work the next day. She wasn't out just partying. And I didn't find anything stating she was supposed to have been celebrating anything. A person of interest was quickly identified and brought in for questioning. John Douglas White was a 55-year-old man who was a local pastor at the very small Christ Community Fellowship Church in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. John lived next door to Rebecca in the Broomfield Valley Trailer Park. John was not a stranger to Rebecca. He was engaged to her mother, Sally, and would often babysit her son. When the news broke of Rebecca's disappearance, White contacted his 14-person congregation requesting everyone pray for her safe return. So he started a prayer chain. Mm-hmm. Everybody look for Rebecca. When John was initially brought in for questioning, he was uncooperative, denying he had any involvement with Rebecca's disappearance. However, after failing a polygraph test and the police finding blood splatter in his truck, Rebecca's home and in his home, he confessed to murdering Rebecca. I wonder what made them question him first. He's connected to the family. Right. You you talk to everybody. Mom, dad, boyfriend. Neighbors. Friends. Yeah. Neighbors, yeah. And he is engaged to her mom. Right. Okay, yeah, you're and right. And he watches her child. So he's somebody, you know, maybe he inserted himself into the investigation initially. Like, all of this is very quickly it happening. It wouldn't surprise me. He's already, like, alerting the congregation and stuff. Yeah, once he found out that she was missing, he mm. alerts the con- which, I mean, a good pastor would do that. Right. On the morning of October 31st, between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., John stated he let himself into Rebecca's home after drinking four or five 24-ounce beers. John admitted to hitting Rebecca on the head with a rubber mallet until she was unconscious and then used a zip tie to strangle her. While hitting her over the head, he claims to have heard her say, I know you. So it's very early in the morning. I'm assuming she can't see. I'm going to go ahead and say this. There's so many articles about this, but there's not a lot with details. And it was very disappointing. There's not a lot of information about her, which was... I found disheartening because I wanted to know more information about her, and I couldn't find hardly anything, and a lot of the links were broke. After killing Rebecca, he removed all of her clothing and put her body, along with her clothes, the mallet, and the bloody rags that he used to try to clean things up with or clean her up with, in the back of his truck. 
He then dumped her body in a ditch behind some pine trees about a mile from her home near Pickard and Coldwater Road in Mount Pleasant. The mallet and bloody towels were dumped near Pickard and Woodruff Roads. White then returned to Rebecca's home to try and clean up the scene and proceeded to get her son, Reddy, who had been sleeping in the next room during the murder. The son, oblivious to what had happened, was dressed in his Halloween costume by White, who then drove him to meet his father, who shared custody of the child with Rebecca. Because it's daytime at this point. Yes. He's getting him up and getting him Mm -hmm. ready. He's getting him up, getting him ready. It's like the regular routine. It's not uncommon for him to drop him off, since he did watch him every now and then. Yeah. No big deal. It sounds very poorly thought out, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's going about his business. Yeah, it's just very casual, I guess, in a way. But, like, in four or five tall boys, that's like a 12-pack of beer. That's what he's saying, is that he was drunk. Okay. I guess. At some point after this, White drove Rebecca's car to the barn door bar and threw her keys, purse, and cell phone in a dumpster near the trailer to make her disappearance look like an abduction. When asked why, White stated, For the past two weeks, not only had he been watching necrophilia porn, he had been having a reoccurring fantasy that involved killing Rebecca and having sex with her dead body. After further questioning by police, he stated he couldn't remember if he'd had sex with her after he killed her. I'm, I'd say he definitely did. Ugh. If you can't remember, then you probably did. That afternoon, on Thursday, November 1st, 2012, White was charged with an open count of murder and first-degree premeditated murder in the death of Rebecca. According to the investigator, he kept saying he's a bad person. He's a pastor. He felt bad for the people in his church. I don't recall him being real remorseful at all with regard to the victim or anything else. He just basically said he was attracted to her and thought she was a very cute girl. Yeah, so he's he's sorry for himself. I guess, and I, it's almost like he he kept saying he's a bad person, he's a pastor, and he felt bad for the people in his church. Like, Yeah, it sounds like he wants somebody to tell him it's okay. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah. After this horrific event, it was discovered that White had also been involved in two other incidents, including a 1981 stabbing and a homicide in 1995. Oh. So in 1981... A 22-year-old married John White invited over a 17-year-old Teresa Etherton to see his stock car racetrack in his basement. Without any warning, White attacks Teresa, choking and stabbing her 15 times, smiling at her the entire time. Teresa stated, He wiped my mouth off and he kissed me and he held my hand and he said, You're going to go now. I'm really sorry you had to go like this, but what the fuck, you're just a woman. However, Teresa survived. Yeah, he's crazy. White was convicted by a jury of attempted murder and sentenced to five to ten years in prison and was recommended mental health counseling while in prison. White apologized and requested help instead of prison time. Teresa stated, They sent him away and they left me alone. They promised me he wasn't going to ever hurt anyone again. So I do want to say that this sounds like they sent him away and then they left her. Like she didn't, after that, she was just alone. She didn't have any help. It's almost what it sounds like to me. And that makes me, now this is the early 80s. No support for the victim. Right. Yeah. And and she's 17. Unfortunately, White appealed and won after serving only two years of this sentence. White claimed his attorney mistakenly did not raise an insanity defense. The attorney was being paid by White's father, who didn't want to pay the additional $1,000 for an independent psychiatrist to examine White, which was needed in order to claim insanity. White also claimed that he had suffered from partial amnesia. How fucking convenient. 
I'm going to say if you can point out the fact that they didn't try to say you were crazy, you're probably not crazy. Exactly. Thank you. The Court of Appeals, however, reversed the jury verdict, and instead of a new trial, White received two years probation and no more jail time just as long as he received mental health treatment. And one of the things I read, it stated that they probably did this plea deal because they were worried that he would get off with insanity. Right. And they were worried about that. Either way, he was out. Yeah, there's just too much red tape. Come to find out, Teresa knew nothing of White's release. And she found out a couple of years later when she was waiting in line and all of a sudden heard a familiar voice. When she turned around, she saw White smiling and staring at her. This occurred a few years before the state's Victims' Rights Act, which requires the court to include the victims in the appeals process. And the victims are also allowed to sign up for notices when a defendant is released from prison. Sounds like maybe about four years after. So she's still early 20s, probably still traumatized. Why is he out? And there he is behind her in line talking and... Oh my God, I freak out. So now we're in 1994. And he went on to lead a healthy... It, I didn't have any other information after their... I was kidding. He didn't. Long, help, happy, healthy life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, on j- July 11th of 1994, 26-year-old Vicki Sue Wall disappeared from the Meyer store in Comstock Township near Kalamazoo County. Vicki and John White both worked at the Textile Systems, Inc. in Oshtomo Township. Sounds right. Okay. Mm-hmm. John, who was still married with two children and one on the way, began having an affair with Vicki. Before Vicki's disappearance... That doesn't sound right. <laughs> before Vicki's disappearance, video surveillance shows her getting into a black pickup truck with a bearded man around 3 a.m. in the morning. When police questioned White, he was evasive and claimed he didn't know who or what they were talking about. That is until they showed him the surveillance video and he changed his story stating he did see her and he had met her in the parking lot, but he but she was alive when he left. Within days of being questioned, White tried unsuccessfully to kill himself with alcohol and pills. Later when questioned, he stated he suffered from blackouts and may have hurt Vicky during one of these blackouts. White refused to take a polygraph. However, the police were able to check White's truck with luminol and there were several spots that glowed. Due to DNA testing being in its infancy at the time, they were unable to pull and test sizable samples, and the blood had to be fresh. So he cleaned up, yeah. even though they had the spots. I it mean, they just couldn't pull long. a sample. It wasn't good enough. Yeah. It was the police belief that White was being pressured by Vicky due to their affair, and so he did something to her. Six weeks later, Vicky's body was discovered two miles from the Meyer store by local resident Thomas Meskill, who had been walking to his parents' home. Vicky's body was found nude and so badly decomposed that her cause of death could not be determined through an autopsy. However, the coroner did state the manner of death was suggestive of a homicide. I couldn't find any information. Like, there was not a lot of information about Vicky. I was trying to get some more info on her, but I couldn't, I really couldn't find any. He was... They just didn't know. They just couldn't tell because it was too decomposed. Yeah, but still, like, I was trying to get info on her to share, but I couldn't couldn't find any. White was charged with open murder, but due to lack of evidence, he pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter. During sentencing, White apologized to Vicky's family, stating her death was a tragic accident and added, I love Vicky very much. The judge, John F. Foley, sentenced him to the max time he could, which was 8 to 15 years in prison, and stated, It appears from your previous violent acts against a woman and this unexplained violent action that you have a dangerous level of self-control. 
White later told a prison psychologist about his fantasies to kill the prosecutor, Carrie Klein, and his own defense attorney, Kathleen Brickley, and have sex with their dead bodies. The prison informed both women of this information, but neither have commented once they were told about it. Wow, that's creepy. That's so, scary. Yeah, so how did, so how long did he get for he, for the involuntary manslaughter? Well, he was, uh, all I could find was he was sent, they sentenced him to the max, which was eight to 15 years in prison. Okay. So, you know, time served, good behavior, taking all the courses, all that other mess. Who knows? It's anywhere between eight to 15 years. But after serving 13 years for the death of Vicky, White was freed in 2007. Oh, so he served 13 years. Yes, he served 13. Okay. But he was sentenced 8 to 15. Right. The prison official stated he went through both group therapy and violent offender treatment, and he had served his time. Hmm. He then moved to Mount Pleasant and became the pastor of a small church. And so now we're back to present day, 2013. He stabbed one girl. He's killed Vicki Wall. He has also killed Rebecca Gay now. And so now he's at court. On April 19th of 2013, John White was sentenced to 56 to 85 years in prison for killing Rebecca Gay. Rebecca's mother addressed the court, stating, John White knew Rebecca was the heart and soul of our family. Someone who showed no mercy on our Rebecca is now at the mercy of the court yet again. She said prayers with her son Conway every night before bed following story time. We found her Bible and devotional next to her bed where she had left them. October 31st, 2012 was a day of complete emotional devastation for our family. It began with a phone call from John White saying he had just been informed by a neighbor Rebecca had not made it to work that morning. Unbeknownst to Rebecca, her longtime boyfriend Aaron had bought an engagement ring and had planned on reposing to Rebecca on the night of Halloween. On Wednesday, August the 28th of 2013, John Douglas White was found hanging in his cell at the Michigan Reformatory Correctional Facility. After EMTs and healthcare professionals tried to resuscitate White, he was pronounced dead at 4.38 a.m. from self-inflicted asphyxiation. Took the easy way out. Yeah. 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 It's a very odd story. I was looking for just weird Halloween stories, but that one was, it made me sad. It's weird. Like, how, like he just... He got, I mean, he, he, he became, got... He kept getting out of trouble. Yeah. He like, how did that even... He just became a preacher. He kept... Well, he was a self-proclaimed preacher. Mm-hmm. And he had 14 in his congregation. The church apparently knew of his past. And I guess because he had served his time, second chances. Yeah. But he'd already had a second chance. And second time he killed somebody. And then... But they gave him a really long t- sentence. And that's probably why he killed himself. I don't know. Because he... They want to spend all that time in prison. I don't know. I don't know. This was weird. Like I can't. I just think it was odd. It was. It, it, it was gross negligence that he was let out the first time. Yeah, I agree. And then, I mean, he technically he served his time the second time, but he obviously was not rehabilitated, not successfully. He may have went through the training, but that it. I wonder if that family was aware of his past. Were they in his church or no? What family? The one that, um... Oh, no. That, like, Rebecca's family did not know of his past. Okay. They didn't, know, they didn't know of all these things. Yeah. And they felt like if the justice system had done right initially, that she would still be alive today. At least they would have known. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe and known not, not to get involved. Him. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But would that have stopped him if he was drunk and he had ever even met her? 
I mean, how did he get into the house? Did he break? So in? apparently the door was unlocked. Okay, I didn't know if they he had a key since he was dating the mom. No, one of the articles stated that the door was unlocked, and so he just kind of let himself in. Hmm. Well, good job. Thank you. It was sad. It was Halloween. I, I guess what got me was him. The boyfriend was about to well, propose. Yeah, but I think what got me is he just he went back. He tried to clean up the scene, and then he gets the little boy ready. At least he didn't hurt the little boy. The police didn't feel like he was ever going to hurt the boy. He didn't feel like, they didn't feel like the boy was in danger. He was apparently worried about the little boy. Yeah, it's just, it's just very odd. odd. Yeah, it's odd to have compassion for one person and then none for someone else. Yeah, it's bizarre. And then just feel sorry for himself. Mm-hmm. Good job. Thank you. Your turn. So, I'm talking about spontaneous human combustion. Okay. Ooh. A couple of my sources for this is how spontaneous human combustion works from science.howstuffworks.com and then solving the mystery of human spontaneous combustion. And that's from labnews.co.uk. And there's a couple others and we'll link those in the notes. Spontaneous human combustion is described as a process in which a human body allegedly catches fire as a result of heat generated by internal chemical activity, but without evidence of an external source of ignition. More than 200 cases of spontaneous human combustion have been reported around the world, dating all the way back to the 1600s. Most stories involve a victim burning almost completely, although sometimes their extremities are left intact, usually the legs or an arm. Even stranger is that the victim's surroundings remain largely unburned. Fires do not typically start on their own, and in order for anything to combust, three things are required. Very high heat, a source of fuel, and an oxidizing agent, which is generally the oxygen in the air. Late at night on Christmas Eve, 1885, in a small farming town of Seneca, Illinois, a woman named Matilda Rooney burst into flames. She was alone in her kitchen when it happened. The fire quickly incinerated her entire body except her feet. The incident also claimed the life of her husband, Patrick, who was found suffocated from the fumes in another room. Wait, he was in another room? Yeah, he was in the other room, and I guess just the smoke and fumes stuff, he suffocated. Okay. The tragedy left the investigators baffled. There was no reason to suspect foul play. The Roonies had been relaxing and drinking whiskey that evening. A farmhand who had spent a few hours with them hadn't noticed anything out of the ordinary. Furthermore, no source of ignition could be found for the blaze. Although the flames had been intense enough to reduce Matilda to ashes and a few fragments of bone, it had not spread to the rest of the room. The fire seemed to have started in her body and stayed confined to her body. On December 5, 1966, the body of 92-year-old Dr. J. Irving Bentley was discovered in his Pennsylvania home by a meter reader. Dr. Bentley was a family physician from 1925 to 1953. A hip fracture in 1947 hampered his ability, and after retiring, Bentley led a quiet life at his two-story home on North Main Street. Temperatures were dipping toward the freezing mark on December 5th, as North Penn Gas Company employee Don Gosnell began his morning rounds. As he had done dozens of times before, Gosnell let himself into the Bentley home at about 9 a.m. and proceeded to the basement to read the meter. He noticed a pile of ashes as well as a hole in the ceiling circled by glowing embers. So, he's in the basement. 
and there's ashes in the basement. On the floor in the basement. And then he can look up and see a hole. With glowing embers around it. Okay. Perplexed, Gosnell called out for the 92-year-old doctor and made his way through the home. A bluish-gray smoke was evident, and Gosnell detected an odor he described as sickly Swedish. The only part left of Dr. Bentley was his legs and a foot still in its house slipper. The rest of the body had been burned to ashes in his bathroom. Part of Bentley's incinerated robe was on the floor, and his walker was left propped against the blackened bathtub, and there was a massive hole in the vinyl floor. The hole was two feet wide by four feet long and had eaten into the wooden floor beams and left a pile of ashes in the basement. Oh, my word. The rest of the house remained intact. Gosnell ran a block to the North Penn gas office and had staff call the local fire department. Potter County Deputy Coroner John Deck and local mortician Richard Lindholm were also summoned, all of them wondering how a human body could erupt in the flames without the wooden house igniting. That's my question, too. Like, how did the whole house just not set ablaze? It was just all If you burnt, like, straight through to the 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 basement. Yeah. There was little remaining of Dr. Bentley's body with the exception of the lower leg and ashes. Paint on the adjacent bathtub was blackened but not blistered. The rubber tips of Dr. Bentley's walker did not melt, even though it was positioned directly over his burning body. Skeptics, however, point to the speculative report of Deputy Coroner Deck now deceased. This is from uh, the coroner. This is his, a quote from him. Looks like Doc Bentley was smoking his pipe. The pipe toppled over and spilled over the tobacco. And in the meantime, he fell asleep. When he woke, he was on fire because some of the flannel nightshirt pieces fell on the floor as he went to the bathroom. That's what he said. It's very speculative. So he was smoking a pipe and some of the embers got on the flannel. Yeah, and then he fell asleep. In a bathroom. And caught his shirt on fire. With the pipe still in his mouth? I guess it had poured out onto his flammable shirt. Bentley was a frequent smoker, and there were burn marks on some of his other garments from previous accidents. Okay. So it's not I can unlikely. see why he would, yeah, I yeah. can see why he would say that now. Those who suspect spontaneous human combustion point out that clothing, when ignited, does not burn for long and could not possibly generate the amount of heat required to consume a human body. Forensic analyst John F. Fisher and technical writer Joel Nichol studied the Bentley case. They said the fact Dr. Bentley shed his robe suggests an external rather than internal source of combustion. So his shirt caught on fire and he took it off. Mm-hmm. But then that should have been the end of it. Right. You'd yeah. think. How would he continue to burn? Yeah. The pair also wrote that materials under the human body, the floor, that is exposed to the fire could help retain melted fat that flows from the body, allowing the fat to burn and in turn yield more liquefied fat, which sounds kind of ridiculous. But what they're talking about is the wick effect where clothing or hair may be lit from a source such as a cigarette or a fireplace and the human body acts much like an inside out candle. As the fat melts from the heat, it soaks into the clothing and the clothing acts as a wax-like substance to keep it burning slowly. Scientists say this would explain why victims' bodies are destroyed, yet their surroundings are barely burned. I still don't understand that. Like, if he took it off... Well, in this case, yeah, it doesn't seem to apply, since he did obviously shed his 
Yeah, if he, I mean, even robe. if he, even though he fell asleep, like he, he took it off. Apparently, he woke up. Maybe he was getting hot and he took it off, and then he burst into flames. <sighs> I don't know. Forensic scientist John DeHaan once watched this gruesome spectacle unfold in real time. Oh, to a pig. Mm-mm. In a 1998 experiment that was televised on the BBC, he wrapped the body of a pig in a blanket, then lit the garment ablaze with some gas. I don't feel like that's the same thing. Number one, it's a pig, but it's dead, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's dead. So it doesn't even have the core body temperature. You can't compare. He wraps it in a blanket and then he pours gas on it and sets it on fire. That's completely different. Well, I think the gas was because a lot of these people have been drinking alcohol. I get that. I do. Like that because, you know, I've been out before and got drink spilled on me or i've spilt a drink on myself i was quite flammable yeah but i don't know yeah it's it just doesn't seem like you can compare like it's it's interesting the effects of what what happened to this uh to this pig by the time he put the flames out a few hours later the slow intense burn had converted a large percentage of the pig's flesh and bones into ash and the rest of the room suffered minimal damage that's i mean that it's quite interesting but like, I thought that, like, with self-combustion, it was, like, your own, like, body temperature in a sense. Maybe I'm thinking of it wrong, too. Well, but I thought to, it was, like, our own body temperature that kind of just burned us up. Like, we are so They're trying to hot. explain an alternative. Right. And that makes sense. Yeah. I just... <sighs> like, this is what really happened. Another interesting fact was that the pig's feet remained intact uh. after all that. Oh, And so this is consistent with reports of spontaneous human combustion leaving disembodied feet or hands. Extremities do not contain as much fat as the core of the body, so it's less likely to go up in smoke when the wick effect occurs. Many so-called victims of spontaneous human combustion were smokers who probably died by falling asleep with a lit cigarette. Several of them were believed to have been under the influence of alcohol as well. Were they all... Possibly overweight since they're since they're saying that you know all the fat is in the core of the body. A lot of the uh, there's a lot of stories on this, and a lot of them are in fact overweight. Okay. Yes, I'm not sure about these particular people, Mm -hmm. but yes, not everyone subscribes to this theory. However, since the temp at which human bodies are cremated is around 14 to 1800 degrees with some crematoriums using a secondary afterburner to help the process along. It takes anywhere from one to three hours for the body to be completely incinerated, and even then there are usually bones left over that have to be pulverized to finish the process. In 1951, a 67-year-old widow named Mary Reeser was at home in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the morning of July 2nd, her landlady discovered that Reeser's front door handle was hot. When the landlady broke into the apartment with the help of two workers, they found a foot and what looked like a charred skull. Mm. No other body parts were present. The gruesome remains sat in a puddle of grease on the floor where Reeser's easy chair used to be. Oh. The rest of her apartment bore very little evidence of fire. Paranormal enthusiasts see Reeser's death as a classic example of spontaneous human combustion. Skeptics point out that the woman was a confirmed smoker who had taken at least two sleeping tablets that day. 
Maybe she dropped a cigarette that started the blaze. Okay, who confirmed that she had two sleeping tablets? I guess the skeptics, but I don't know who... But how would you know? You don't even have a body. You can't test... Maybe, I don't know. ...her blood. You can't test to see if she had it. Nice try, skeptics. Take your pig and go home. (laughs) (laughs) And... In 1982, a mentally handicapped woman named Jean Lucille Saffin was sitting with her elderly father at their home in Edmonton in northern London. To her parents' horror, Jeannie's upper body suddenly became enveloped in flames. The stove appeared to be unlit, and no smoke or fire damage could be found anywhere else in the room. Even the wooden chair that she was sitting on at the time was spared. So it didn't even... It was fine. Oh, Mr. Saffin and his son-in-law, Donald Carroll, managed to put out the blaze, but after a brief hospital stay, Jeannie died of third-degree burns. Some forensic analysts wonder if an ember from her father's pipe ignited Jeannie's clothing. How close was Jeannie to her dad's pipe? Like, they do know that they're supposed to be sucking in instead of blowing out. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, what the hell? Blowing out all this bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I get it, I guess. I mean, I don't know, because we don't smoke and or smoke pipes, so I just don't understand. Like, they sound very messy. In 2010, 76-year-old Michael Faraday of Galway, Ireland, was found dead on his living room floor. His body was thoroughly crisp, with his head lying beside an open fireplace. The ceiling space above him showed burn marks, and so did the floor beneath it. Yet nothing else in Faraday's home was torched. News of his tragic death probably wouldn't have spread beyond the local obituary if coroner Sierra McLaughlin had not pointed out the cause to be spontaneous human combustion. Oh. She put that on the death certificate. This is a quote. This fire was thoroughly investigated, and I am left with the conclusion that this fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion for which there is no adequate explanation. Not everyone is convinced, though. Critics say that an ember from the fireplace could have landed on Faraday's clothing and started the fatal blaze. It's all about them embers. Very dangerous. I guess I need to know, does this happen in the summer? With as many people that smoke. Oh, no, the one guy was in the wintertime. But that's why why I'm saying, like, in the winter, it makes sense. All these embers floating around, like, from fireplaces and stuff like that. Lots of people smoke, and they're not bursting into flames. Yeah. But, like, I need to... Is there a skinny person in the summertime, not around a fireplace, that doesn't smoke cigarettes, or around smokers that's not drunk, that has suffered from spontaneous combustion? I don't know. You keep talking. I'm looking it up. As I mentioned before, there are hundreds of cases of spontaneous human combustion However, there aren't many cases of anyone surviving this phenomenon. In fact, I can only find one case of an individual who had claimed to survive spontaneous combustion. This individual was Frank Baker, who served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. The highly decorated soldier, earning two Purple Hearts for his service, had been preparing to go on a fishing trip with his friend Pete Willie when fire suddenly engulfed his body. So just a quick side note, I thought it was interesting. This guy's a U.S. Army veteran from Vietnam, mm-hmm. and his buddy's name is Pete Willie. Willie Pete is military jargon for white phosphorus, and white phosphorus got its name in the Vietnam War, the Willie Pete name. Oh. And they would drop it into the dense jungles to flush out the Viet Cong. And 
white phosphorus is it's used for smoke. It's also an incendiary device and it'll burn all the way through your clothes and skin to the bone. Oh, that is weird. That is weird. But his name is yeah. Pete Willie, but it's called Willie Pete. That's or it was. They, that's, that's how they, they call it. And when they call it in. Anyway, you learned that from that video game. Well, I heard it on the video game, but I didn't know it was from it was named. They started calling it that in Vietnam. The pair recalled the terrifying incident, which took place in June 1985, in an episode of the Science Channel's Unexplained Files. We were just getting ready for fishing and sitting on the couch, Frank said on the episode. Everything was great. Pete was sitting next to me and we were having a hell of a time. That is, until things started to heat up. A flame suddenly appeared on Frank's body. It was the damnedest thing I'd ever seen, Pete recalled. Frank was freaking out and making me freak out. Frank started panicking and tried everything to stop his body from being burned. I had no idea what was taking place on my body, Frank said. Frank and Pete somehow put out the flames and got Frank to a doctor, but the diagnosis was just as shocking as the sudden fire. The doctor called and said, Frank, this burned from the inside out. Now, I watched the episode on the Science Channel. It doesn't give much explanation on how the doctor came to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. They just said how the doctor was baffled by the case. And didn't have any other explanation for it. I guess the the way the burn looked, it wasn't like a regular external burn, maybe? I don't know. So there's many other documented stories on spontaneous combustion. And you can go and read about a lot of them. Uh, most of the cases do include some sort of alcohol. And the people are usually smokers or they're near uh, an open fire source of some type. Fireplace, something. Uh, in Frank's case, it doesn't look like there was any nearby fire source. And I'm not sure if they were drinking or not. But they were getting ready to go fishing. So probably. But I don't know. Too bad it didn't happen at the lake. He could have just jumped in the he water. He just dove right in. Problem solved. Yeah. So that's spontaneous human combustion. Nice. So I can't, I mean, I specifically Googled skinny people that died from spontaneous human combustion. And it did, like, I just got a bunch of trash articles. So I would have to look deeper into that one. But... On the independent.co.uk says that SHC is used to describe instances when a human, either living or recently dead, seems to burst into flames without an external source or ignition. It's argued that it can be caused by an individual's behavior and habits, such as alcohol consumption, inner mechanisms of the body, or even acts of God or sorcery. I think sorcery. That's what I was about to say. I'm pretty sure we found our answer. Mm-hmm. Magic. That's the one I like. Here's my question. How many dead bodies do you think have suffered from SHC? But I wonder, like, when you put in, like, embalming fluid, can they, are they still flammable? And you just don't know because they're buried? Could, Could this be. be, like, a very common occurrence and we just don't know? Because we don't exhume people unless there's a reason. Very strange. You did a great job. Thank you. I'm ready for Halloween. I've been watching Shudder. Caught up on Walking Dead. I was, like, three years behind. I'm good. I've been watching uh, Warzone on Call of Duty. Okay, that's a game. That's playing. That's not watching television. (laughs) (laughs) You're not watching scary movies. I watched, uh, what was the one we watched the other night? Oh, uh, the Adam Sandler movie. Okay, Hubie Halloween is not scary and it doesn't count. It was terrifying. Just so people know, Michael's most favorite movie to watch on Halloween is Monster House. That is my favorite movie and we haven't watched it yet. There's still plenty of time. We're only like halfway through the month. We've got lots of scary stuff to cover. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. Please come back. 
Don't forget to rate us, subscribe to us, tell your friends, listen to the shitty podcast. You guys are going to fucking hate it. And yes! email us about it, how much you love it. Yeah, email us. Talk to us on Instagram and tell us about it. Oh, we hate this. We hate you. We love it. We love you. <laughs> exactly. Until next time, friends. I would suggest maybe doing like I do and drinking your bourbon in the nude. Oh, God. You can never be too safe. <sighs> then, then you won't combust. No. How about... Where are you sitting when you're doing this? How about in your seat? Oh, God. No. Let's not drink in the nude. Okay. You got to drink responsibly, Wendy. It says it on the bottle. <laughs> I don't think you have to be naked. <laughs> Stop sitting in my chair. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Until next time, fellow absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.